Dr. Angel Alouk is an assistant professor in the School of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at York University. As a member of Big Stone Cree Nation and Treaty 8 Territory, her research has mainly focused on the political economy of oil and gas in Alberta. She specializes in indigenous feminisms, life course approaches, indigenous research methodologies, cultural identity, and the sociology of family and work. David Gray Donald is a settler media worker in Tuckeronto. He worked as a climate campaigner at Environmental Defense from 2022 to March 2023. He's also worked as the publisher of Briar Patch, a news and analysis magazine with strong anti-poverty, feminist, and decolonial politics, and the publicity and promotions manager at Between the Lines. He's currently publisher of The Grind magazine and is the co-author of the new book, The End of This World, climate justice in so-called Canada. The other authors of that book are Emily Eaton, Joelle LaForest, Crystal Lehman, and Bronwyn Tucker. We focus primarily on The End of This World, an absolutely indispensable text for understanding and acting on our climate crisis paradox. There's far too much in that book for me to even attempt to summarize it, but what I'd like to emphasize is that it is proactive, decolonial, and radical in the sense of identifying the fundamental roots of our climate emergency in a relationship to the land that they and others have described as extractivist. Now that term can be tricky. As Imra Zeman and Jennifer Wenzel have explained, it's a term that designates not just the practice of extraction, but the ideological project of making extraction from the earth for private gain and consumer use seem completely natural, normal, and inevitable. Against that, and in response to the threats inherent to global warming, Angel and David, along with their co-authors, look to imagine alternative futures. Futures that aren't even just limited to decarbonization, but that respond in rigorous ways to the question of what it will mean to decolonize and decarbonize as two aspects of the same mission to save our planet. For Angel, the point is to emphasize the possibility and urgency of imagining ways of, quote, building an economy based on systems of care to replace what she calls our death economy. The goal has to be not only respecting indigenous sovereignty and inherent rights, but supporting everyone. This is a struggle for the future of a habitable planet, after all. And the push for a just transition has to confront that challenge with a sober sense of how to lift up not just workers in the oil and gas industry, but also people in the service industry who work to facilitate that industry, the people who take care of all the care labor, the domestic forms of caring that are usually performed by women, and that are always left not only unattended to, but unrewarded. So I'm releasing this interview around Earth Day for these reasons, but listening again to their insights, it struck me that Earth Day or Earth Month, or even making the claim that Earth Day is every day, is insufficient. These are good reminders, sure, but they're incomplete. Their book isn't just a reminder, it's a roadmap. And even though obviously a roadmap is a, a metaphor rooted to an extent in our current regime of fossil-fueled freedom, it's the right metaphor for thinking about how to get on and stay on a pathway that takes us out of the accelerationist race toward blowing our carbon budget blowing our chance to stop the measurable, material, and tangible effects of runaway global heating. As they say in the book, new political possibilities can be opened up quickly, and change often happens in a non-linear way. And that means that there isn't a strict deadline after which hope is lost. It's an honor to be able to talk to you about the end of this world, climate justice in so-called Canada, um, a really inspiring text that you created. Um, and the first question I had was really about the process of producing the book. It's, I think, you know, essential reading for anyone concerned with the ways that we seem stuck in what you describe as a death economy based on fossil fuels. Um, but it, it was the product of clearly a lot of work. In the acknowledgments for the book, you talk about the fact that you're a diverse team of people who actually didn't know each other very well before the project started, but then through many hours in remote meetings, um, you reached a point, obviously, where you were able to achieve a shared vision and a collective articulation of what's necessary. Um, Dave, I know you mentioned at the York launch of the book that 
reflecting on the process, it was a lot of discussion between settlers and indigenous authors about what a just transition means, how to connect with different audiences and what that discussion looks like. Now that the book is out and making the impact that it, that it is being widely read, have you kind of reflected again on that experience and how it's written into the fabric of the book? Angel, do you want to start? Yeah, maybe I'll start. So I guess some of us kind of knew each other before the book, but then we really developed um, relationships as like writers and intellectuals during, I guess I'd call a two-year process of working on the book. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I had worked with a couple people on the corporate mapping project and um, I know Dave and Emily knew each other and I'm familiar with Crystal Lehman's work and um, Joel was, you know, has a very um, big following on his podcasts. And, and so we were all kind of aware of each other, I think. <clears throat> but the great thing that we, we did was uh, we interviewed each other right. before we started writing to get to know each other um, and how we've all kind of come to this place where we're thinking about a just transition and really centering a discussion of just transition on Indigenous settler relations of returning to treaty and respecting Indigenous sovereignty and being aware of like the different movements that are happening, like land back, climate justice, youth movements, um, the labor movement. So we, we all kind of got to know each other through um, interviewing each other, not just like our biographical history of like how we came to do this work, but kind of our, I don't know if I'd say like philosophical understandings or mm -hmm. of, of what a just transition is, because we've seen discussions about like climate change policies and government and just transition policies and principles and statements by different movements and governments. Um, and I think we'd all developed our own understanding of what a good just transition would look like. And as we were writing, we really kind of relied on each other to um, really articulate our ideas. And there was points where we kind of, I don't know what I'd say, like we were able to be critical of each other but at the same time, like be supportive allies and really get to know where each of us was coming from. So I think it was a long process of getting to know each other to really build these ideas that we develop in the book. Uh, what would you say, Dave? Yeah, I'd echo all that. And then I'll just add a technical note, which is we were, as a team of six, struggling to write write in a voice that we liked, that we all were comfortable with. And partly the, the reason we interviewed each other was to, to get to know each other and all that, and also to use parts of the transcript for parts of the book. Mm -hmm. So for example, Angel was talking about what does a just transition mean to you? And we all answered that. And the idea was to try and pick apart the, the transcript and find some text that could work in the book. Not much is a direct one-for-one um, -one from the transcripts, but it did help us put words on a page that we could use because six people in Google Docs or in various documents wasn't working, doesn't work very well. So, mm -hmm. so on a technical note, it was helpful for us to have those conversations and get some movement on, on what each of us wanted, not just the loudest of us uh, in the book. Yeah. And it, the result is this lively sense of movement where I think like you do have multiple, um, you know, kind of interwoven, but very different, like ontological and cosmo cosmological conceptions of the world and what should be done to secure a healthy future, um, which is, you know, no, no easy feat. Um, you see that in the text. It is this comprehensive, radical, extremely engaged politically book um, but it's also still, I think, in many ways, troubled by certain unresolved questions about how to move, for example, the control of just basic utilities into public hands or how to undo the settler colonial state and its sort of presumption of sovereign control over the land. Um, these are extremely big questions. 
um, that obviously like maybe no one person can easily uh, figure out. And so I felt as though reading the book that there were these moments where you reached a kind of impasse in terms of imagining what was possible. And you would often lean on this strategy of what we could maybe call futuring or prefiguration, right? Um, and that takes a number of different forms, I think, in the book. Like sometimes it takes the form of being able to easily imagine a future, as you say, where renewable energy is available for those who can pay for it, a kind of negative or dystopian futuring. But then other times it takes the form of pointing to real instances of groups showing what the future could look like uh, if we took seriously radical decolonial visions of the good life. Um, things like, you know, publicly owned green transportation, renewable retrofitted, retrofitted social housing, all of these things. You're literally inviting your reader to picture these things. Um, and I'm really interested in hearing about like the method of the book and how it's looking to basically transcend certain forms of political realism that we see right now uh, by doing a kind of futuring work. Why did you feel like that specific strategy of like looking into the near future and actually like prefiguring um, a just transition was important for people to be able to kind of go to that place that you're, you're helping them go to. I, I kind of want to return to the first question, but also focus on the second question mm -hmm. um, because there's another maybe like technical note or methodological note of how we wrote this book. Mm -hmm. So we, we got to know each other and our perspectives and our different strengths as writers and thinkers. Um, and then we, like the book has seven chapters plus an introduction. So we were each kind of assigned one or two chapters to focus on where, you know, we, we wrote the, the main draft for the chapter and then the other authors kind of, you know, would review and edit it and add, add to it or leave things as were. So we each kind of relied on our own expertise in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that allowed us by each being main authors for specific chapters, I think that allowed us to each imagine a future of how we would like it to be. Um, like the first chapter on asserting indigenous sovereignty um, was really kind of a vision of Crystal Lehman. And, and, and I had a real vision for the fifth chapter, which I guess I was the lead author on, but I couldn't have done it without leaning on like Dave and Bronwyn and Crystal. <laughs> um, and like I had a real, like I really wanted to imagine building a, an economy um, based on, you know, systems of care and reimagining an economy away from a death economy to one based on living and having a good life and decent work. Um which for me was like very important, but mm -hmm. um, my co-authors really helped rein in that vision um, <laughs> to put it down on paper. You know, I, I just, I think about, you know, as we we're writing the book, how I leaned on different co-authors for different understandings of the future. Like I know Bronwyn has worked in the climate justice youth movement. And so she had a very strong understanding of what the vision of the future is coming from those movements. And, and so I, I felt I really connected with her kind of vision for the future um, at certain points. And then, you know, as an academic, I really connected with some of Emily's visions for the future. Um, and we are also considered considering like our audience um, and the, communities and movements that each of us come from and how these messages would be received. And that's, that's so powerful. I think like the result of it um, is you have this book that is a really rare thing. It's not an anthology. It's not a collection of essays. Um, it's something much more, there's a kind of synergy there. Um, but sorry, I don't mean to uh, preempt what you're going to say there, Dave. Yeah, I, I appreciate that comment and I agree with Angel. I think the other thing to add to what Angel was saying is um, we were, I think, in, in forming the team, I think we were conscious to make it so that we were roughly politically aligned um, and there weren't that many really strong disagreements. Um, 
there were some, and there's some things unresolved in the text, mm-hmm. but mostly, so in terms of our vision for the future, they were informed by all sorts of different experiences, uh, you know, Cree worldview or Nehiyam worldview, um, you know, settler ideas of the world. And, but it wasn't like we were having strong disagreements about what is, was possible and what we wanted to see. I, w- I want to pick up on the ideas that I've been thinking about in terms of uh, someone who's worked in media and journalism for a while, which is, and, and political journalism, which is that we've, uh, as you see in the book, we've been put into this very narrow box of what is possible in climate policy in Canada and in de- decolonization, like official uh, federal policy around decolonization, federal and provincial. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to show people, like is discussed in climate justice and um, uh, indigenous movements, that so much more is possible because of the way that government works and media works of, of sort of press release journalism or um, just commenting on what the government does, we rarely get outside of the the official narratives that um, are presented to us. So, uh, and there's very few books that do it as well. And to your point, um, Scott, that it's a one continuous narrative, not an anthology. There are very few books that look at the history, especially intertwining climate and indigenous history, indigenous rights and sovereignty in one easy to read narrative. Um, There are some anthologies, there's a number of academic works, but uh, I think we wanted to make something that pretty much anyone could pick up and see the narrative, see what the government and fossil fuel industry has done to block climate action and indigenous sovereignty, and then see how much more is possible. So that was was some of the driving Mm -hmm. uh, rationale for, for some of those choices. I feel like you've kind of given us an opportunity there to sort of zoom out for a moment and look at the way that the book surveys the problem in Canada, so-called Canada. Uh, you explain that, you know, we've got active coal mines in BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. There's the infamous oil sands, giant oil, I'm, qu- I'm quoting the text here, giant oil rigs offshore of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, conventional oil rigs in the prairies and fossil gas and oil fracking operations in specific places too. That's a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, It can be hard to take in all at once and certainly hard to imagine moving away from, like stranding all of those investments despite the necessity of like doing, doing that, right? But here's the thing, like the text has this incredibly cohesive and pragmatic sense of how to theorize and strategize the, that move. Um, You talk about devaluing artificially inflated fossil fuel assets, buying and socializing these companies, putting the industry, as you say, on its heels and freeing up public money. Um, You're you're working to make these ideas feel materially possible. I wonder if you could speak to whether like the goal in some sense was to think through that process in order to inform movements, because there's also, of course, um, to Angel's point, like an ethics of care at the center of the book as well where I think you're, you're relating um, Nehiao uh, or Cree values of like raising children in a good way, modeling good relations and unity, survival and respect. Like there is this alloy being created um, that is about trying to, again, like, tr- you know, figure a means of within so-called Canada, um, you know, p- politicize care, make care the kind of central question when it comes to transitioning away from fossil fuels. Do either of you want to expand on that part of the argument? I'll I'll start on some of the climate policy, and then maybe Angel, you can take over on on the care economy side of things. Yeah. So, yeah, the we're we're proposing a really bold um, series of actions that governments could take to phase out the fossil fuel industry, recover profits from that industry as it's winding down and use that to fund just transition and care economy uh, work. 
we, we realize totally that that is so far outside of what is happening right now in Canada and most other nation states. Um, but we wanted to show that it is possible. And one of the examples that we use is the um, more um, public ownership of the oil and gas industry back in the 70s in Canada, uh, where several provinces and the federal government through Petro-Canada had um, their own oil and gas operations and companies. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, they're in the sort of climate NGO space, there's a number of organizations that have mapped out different policy frameworks for how to stop um, subsidies to fossil fuel companies uh, that makes them less valuable because they're not getting such support, Um, stopping public financing, offering these really generous loans to the companies, regulations like blocking off um, uh, conserved areas so that the industry can't continue to expand. And then there's this question, as you raised, of um, putting the companies under public ownership, both to be able to control them and to recover revenues. Um, We wanted to just show that this is possible. And then uh, to get people thinking about it, in the later chapters, we talk about how to push governments to move in that direction. I don't want to give people the impression that we're just proposing all this stuff without um, considering that how far outside of the, the current trajectory it is. But that was a big part of of bringing in that. And I think the bridge that I'll make is just to say that that all has to happen uh, in a framework of Indigenous sovereignty and um, rights uh, recognition, and also in a way that supports everyone. Uh, There's a lot of talk around supporting oil and gas workers, but people around the oil and gas industry, especially, especially indigenous people, racialized people, women in the service industry, in places like Lloyd Minster, Fort McMurray, um, Estevan in Saskatchewan, there's so many people who also need support. And all over the country, there are people who are not in the oil, like directly employed in oil and gas, making a lot of money, who need a lot of support anyway, and through this transition. As Dave was talking, I was thinking about, you know, how I've had to imagine different futures when I worked in the labor movement. Like um, I worked on an activity um, with different labor economists and community researchers and academics to work on an alternative Alberta budget for three years where we would look at the provinces budgets and and say what if we imagined it differently what if we focused on workers and families um you know the federal budget was just released yesterday and i'm sure there's people working for unions and indigenous organizations and ngos and in environmental groups that saw that federal budget come out and imagine a different way that that budget could have went sure and there's people all over Canada working in these organizations as community researchers, as I'd call them, and intellectuals in community that imagine different futures um, and imagine the economy differently. And I think that's what I learned working in the labor movement was focusing on working people, which are often Indigenous folks and Black folks, disabled folks people of different sexualities and genders, um, just trying to make the best life for themselves. Um, You know, some of my research, I look at the meaning of work. Why do people work? Why do people Mm. choose certain work? Why are people limited in the choices of work that they have? And so as a sociologist, I really look at these social structures that impact our working lives. And, you know, I, I think I quote this in the book, but when Jesuit priests first were in Canada at some point um, and they saw how indigenous parents cared and loved for their, loved their children, they, they really thought that Cree parents were pathetic in the way that they just showered their children with love. And there's these Cree, you know, principles and laws of, of how you raise your children to live a good life. 
and that our economies and communities should be based around caring for our most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That when children are young, they should be living the good life, the fast life. They should be growing Mm -hmm. and learning to become, you know, active citizens and in their nations. And everybody in community would have a role to care for each other and care for the land and respect relationships with, you know, our human and non-human relations. And so when I look at our colonial capitalist society, it's not really built for working people with families, especially those of us who are indigenous or black or people of color or different genders. Like this economy is not made for our benefit And it makes it difficult to care for each other in our current death economy, which is capitalist and colonial. Like this capitalist economy is the reason, you know, indigenous people are experiencing land theft and are the most vulnerable to climate change um, impacts. So it's a very unequal economy. And right now, the people that are making the decisions about what a just transition should look like are more likely to be white settler men working for oil and gas companies that, you know, have the ear of our governments. Um, And that's one thing I learned in the corporate mapping project is the immense power um, and power systems that oil and gas control in Canada. And so I I think we need to move away from that and imagine a different future. Indigenous people had their own economies and political systems and legal systems before settlers came. Why can't we imagine a future that's more aligned with, you know, how my ancestors did things? Or even... You know, there's histories of people sharing the commons in Europe and, and you know, different ways of living with each other and in relation to the earth and people. So I think there's, there's a different way to imagine the economy. And it doesn't just have to be based on profits and greed and um, destroying and exploiting the earth and people. And I think we need to imagine a future that's based on life, on good work, on on love and caring for each other. Um, yeah, so that's why I wanted to an- imagine a future based on Mio Pamatsuin, a good life, Mio Wichi Dawin, which is raising your children in a good way, Seduska Dawin, pulling together when we have to in times of crisis. And those laws of caring that I discuss in the book. Mm -hmm. I think we can imagine a different future if we look at, there's points in history where we didn't have exploitive capitalist systems controlling our economies. And I think we need to imagine a future based on those systems. I'm inspired to like, to try and think with you on that. Um, And I see you trying to blend um, you know, multiple points here. Like it, it's hard in some ways to um, rethink the economy in in terms of care uh, because the economy is so often imagined just purely in terms of the kind of cold calculus of, of the profit motive, uh, self-interest and, and these kinds of things. Like these things seem completely incongruous, but it might be said, in fact, that the book contains this, this kind of other form of futuring a specifically indigenous futuring that is about looking back to move forward, you know, for you. And, and it seems like the entire team here of, of thinkers and activists, like it's not just about one kind of transition. It's about uh, a transition that engages with questions of sovereignty and jurisdiction in a radical way. Right. So you're making it clear that uh, while the coordination of efforts across jurisdictions in so-called Canada makes transition undeniably difficult one basic structuring pr- principle is going to have to be the fact that there, there will, you know, that there's this n- need for shared control um, of of 
of energy, of extraction, of whatever we may call, um, you know, ener- energy infrastructure, a, a shared control between indigenous peoples and settlers. So like this, this is, as you say, in the context of a settler government that still believes that its possession of the land is completely unassailable. So like anything that stalls or stops resource development and extraction is just deemed illegal. Um, but you're offering this expression of like an indigenous futuring that's about showing us that this this future that you're you're describing, one of cares, is rooted in the past, but it's also like manifesting itself right now in the present assertion of indigenous sovereignty. Yeah, I, I, I think we should look back at, you know, indigenous economies of care that we had in the past. But also right now, there are so many indigenous people across Canada that are living indigenous economies of care. Like if you go to my first nation, you know, I have relatives who hunt and share out meat and fish and aunties who pick berries and share that food when there's a time of crisis in community, um, like a, like a funeral or, or when there's a wedding or a celebration, we come together and we share. Like I grew up in a community of sharing. I just had my elders here from my community. Um, I spent a few days with them and there was sharing and caring. Like you, when you're in indigenous community, you're, you're, you know, well fed from your relatives, people check on you in terms of your mental, physical health. Um, people share things you know, like resources. So that's the community I came from was one based on sharing and reciprocity um, and respect. And so there's people across Canada who are Indigenous that are doing these things in community, on reserve, in the city. I can even talk about the urban Indigenous community I'm a part of in Toronto and the sharing that I've experienced here. So, you know, people are living in this futuristic way. Um, and I think we need to recognize that as well. I love that, that people are living in this futuristic way. Um, Dave, did you want to add to that thread at all? I will just add that um, in terms of like looking back to look forward, um, especially well in, in most of so-called Canada, but especially in the prairies, uh, and, you know, in the book, like Angel and Crystal or uh, Nehia, uh, Cree. And so we were looking to treaty, um, specifically Treaty 6 and Treaty 8. But also, I mean, those are the sort of colonial names, but also like the, the Cree understanding of treaty. And so that um, provides a framework for, for sharing, uh, a framework for future um, relationships and so in, in when you said um, sort of looking back to look forward, that was one of the main things that stuck out to me was just returning to the spirit and intent of treaty. Um, things like, um, you know, settlers being able to use lands in the area, but not um, beyond the depth of a plow. Um, what the implication for mining, for oil and gas, for coal, what, what the implication is there. And um, yeah, I think that was something that guided a lot of the writing and conversations in the book was thinking back to treaty and forward with treaty. Mm -hmm. And in terms of that, I mean, I wondered if we could sort of get into the weeds as it were to some extent. I mean, at one point in the book, you're talking about the fact that there are indigenous communities that are trying to develop green energy projects, but are being held back by colonial systems that don't accept their autonomy and jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of, of sovereignty here, I was really hoping that you could elaborate on that specific struggle, you know, specifically maybe in relationship to this reality that, as you say, renewable energy grids are most affordable and resilient when they prioritize the local provision of distributed, relatively small scale renewable energy. I think making the different shape and structure of like the renewable grid clear to people is, is kind of important. And I wondered if you could explain how that sort of infrastructure is being blocked and whether you could speculate on why it's being blocked. Um, I, I can say a little bit, it's uh, really crystal 
uh, one of our co-authors who knows this more. She's really been at the table, especially with Treaty 6 nations in uh, at the table with the Alberta government mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, the Alberta government makes or has made very small investments in indigenous renewable energy and much larger investments in, I mean, obviously oil and gas, but more in the settler-led um, renewables industry. And so um, I think it was Montana First Nation, which is in Alberta, so-called Alberta, and they were trying to use some of their traditional land to build a solar facility. And the Alberta government just held them up at every turn, saying they didn't have the jurisdiction, saying they didn't have the permits, they couldn't get the funding, just everything, a huge, slow process, um, a, a mess. And it made for a really, really trying time for the people involved. Um, but they have been able to move forward with a pretty impressive um, solar in- installation there. But, you know, everything that was achieved was achieved um, not because of collaboration with the, the provincial government, but fighting against the provincial government, having to overcome all the obstacles. Uh, so I think that, that might answer a bit of your question. But Angel, I don't know if you have more context. Yeah. Trying to develop any sort of economic projects as a First Nation is often difficult because of the jurisdictional nightmare Mm. um, between the federal government and the provincial government, um, because the Indian Act really regulates what you can and can't do on reserve land and on crown land. Um, It's very difficult to start businesses and, you know, really assert indigenous sovereignty in that way. And and I think it's because of the shackles that are created by the Indian Act that mm-hmm. don't allow these projects um, to be done in the way that nations want to do them. Um, also, you know, under the Alberta government, when they did had, have climate leadership policies and they were giving funds to corporations and governments for renewable energy projects, um, a lot of, a bulk of the money went to corporations, energy mm-hmm. companies. And First Nations communities, Métis communities, were made to, you know, fight over the, the scraps left over from this policy that, you know, much more was invested into energy companies. Right than communities that wanted to work on these projects. Um, so I think that's part of that context as well. And and it doesn't, you know, that, that climate leadership plan was under the NDP government, um, which some of us were hopeful would have been a government that had better Indigenous relations. Um, but again, they really bent over backwards to serve their capitalist colonial masters in the oil company mm-hmm. oil companies in Canada in Alberta so um, th- there's there's a real power dynamic that happens there that no matter what government is in power in prairie provinces um, it's it ends up being a very colonial government because they serve industry more than the people on the land. And, and this is the, this is the problem that you keep in the book, like uh, colliding with. And so, you know, I wondered if I get asked, like, because I, I find myself persuaded by so much in the book, you know, it, but given my own positionality as a white settler and having the kinds of conversations that I have about like what's realistic within electoral politics and the kind of, you know, the structure of this, you know, overdeveloped, uh, hyper-capitalist, basically petro state, I still like, I kept in reading the book, having this creeping sense of like defeatism that I had to fight and that the book was helping me fight. Um, so when you express the desperate need for like public participatory energy infrastructure, radically democratic management of it, like I'm all in, 
but then I still keep thinking about the ideological barriers to that sort of political transition. Um, and, and I guess like this brings me to, to a question about the book's discussion of populism. You talk about in, in the text, you talk about how the solution proposed by the populist formula is the displacement or replacement of an elite by representatives of the people. And we've seen that manifest as, you know, largely forms of right-wing populism where the narrative, as you say, that elites have sold out every day, meaning white and male working people and their values by accepting globalization seems to really resonate with white folks that feel like spurned and abused by contemporary neoliberal capitalism, basically. But, you know, what you're suggesting that could be one winning formula is a decolonial left-wing populism. So I guess I just wanted to ask about how, like, as co-authors, you dealt with, on the one hand, the specter of far-right populism, whether you have different perspectives on its power, and if you differed at all in your sense of how the power of left populism as this kind of lever for change uh, might work, because it does seem like there's a degree of amb- ambivalence in the book about this idea of like a left populism. Yeah, I can I can try and say a couple things, um, but yeah, I agree that there are people who spend more time thinking about this uh, th- than I do. I think the one thing to to start with is just that the unlike the right wing parties in Canada and throughout the world we really can't wait for um, the left parties, the green parties, the NDP, the greens to lead in a populist um, sort of narrative because that's just not what they're doing. That's not what they've done. And what it comes down to is building a story that is compelling, uh, helps people understand the world and that gets people excited. And the right is just really winning on that uh, and the left is losing in part because it's it's so timid uh, in the electoral sphere mm-hmm. and then very under-resourced and like often not as serious as it needs to be um, outside of electoral politics and, and fighting lots of we end up fighting lots of um, defensive battles um, For sure. but yeah and then the one caution around populism is that it can it can oversimplify. So it the idea is that it puts forward a easy to understand um, story about what's happening in the world and how various actions can change the course of of things of history. And but it's, it's the danger in such a, a simple narrative is that it oversimplifies. And we tend to and even in the book I know in chapter two and three which. I was very involved in, we get deep in the weeds. We get really deep in the weeds on climate policy mm-hmm. and the story becomes harder to follow, less exciting. And we need to keep our eye on good storytelling that is exciting and that gets people thinking about how it affects them and their lives. Uh, so that I think is, is sort of the challenge that we're putting out there. And we don't have a, an exact sort of left populism formula that we're proposing, we're just saying it needs to get a lot better. Right. And it, it is a powerful tool. Yeah. And I'd also say, you know, David mentioned the media earlier and fear and hate and anger sell newspapers and they also get a lot of clicks in social media. Mm-hmm. Our algorithms are set to like send us, you know, these stories about that scare us, that create fear and, and, you know, white supremacy and and hate and sexism and racism, like that's what gets clicks online. And that's, you know, what people are exposed to. So that's also something that's like, how do you how do you fight that? And I guess my solution Mm. is we fight it with care and love and reciprocity and, and telling good stories. Yeah. Um, Because there are communities, there are indigenous communities and settler communities that are you know, thinking of a better future. The question that does come out of uh, some of what you were just saying is in relationship to um, the risks and I guess the rewards of a strategy of simplification, um, because absolutely, I, I agree that, um, you know, the, you know, the contemporary media sphere is entirely about trying to feed off of certain forms of like, acrimony, you know, passionate expressions of 
uh, often very simplistic emotions. Um, and, and that can be both these sorts of negative, hateful, aggressive emotions, but also in some ways like a, like a shallow hopefulness um, that doesn't dwell in the messiness of, of the transition that will be required. And so, you know, in the book, you're devoting tons of time to talking about the ways that the current reforms of the type we're seeing in like the newest federal budget in Canada uh, are really being devised so that we can maintain business as usual. The way you put it is that the, quote, packaging of new denialism keeps changing, a constant stream of new phrases and policies that make it sound like the industry is changing with the times when it isn't. You mentioned a you know, price on carbon, for example, but the rise of net zero rhetoric seems to be a major problem in your analysis. Um, you know, I, I, I guess like in terms of the problems and the power of simplification, like what is problematic about the language of net zero, zero? How is it based on, as you say, dubious accounting that needs to be exposed? What, what does it almost strategically miss in, um, you know, obscuring the real, uh, the real, you know, transition that will be required off of, yeah, fossil fuels? Sure. So really briefly, the, what we need to do in terms of stabilizing the climate at any level any safe or uh, level is to stop burning fossil fuels as quickly as possible. They're responsible for about 80% of, of global emissions. They're the main driver of global heating or climate change. And so what net zero does is it relies on this promise uh, that one uh, emission will offset uh, be offset by a reduction somewhere else. A fame, the most sort of classic example is that we'll plant a tree somewhere and that will store carbon. And so um, a fossil gas or natural gas power plant can keep emitting as long as that tree is there so, like, grabbing carbon out of the air. air. Mm-hmm. The problems here are that, uh, you know, that tree might be growing anyway and there are not nearly enough trees to actually uh, it could be planted to actually sequester enough carbon. And also they're very unreliable. Um, mm-hmm. We saw wildfires in Fort McMurray. We see them all over the place. And they're often, uh, the way they're grown is faster growing trees that uh, are monetized to produce monocultures uh, in Global South, especially pushing Indigenous people off their lands. And it's really unreliable Um So what ends up happening through net zero rhetoric is that the industry gets to keep on doing what they're doing and they say, oh, we're going to plant some trees somewhere or we're going to capture some emissions somewhere else someday in the future. It's a promise of action when the the real action that's needed is stopping the burning of fossil fuels. So that's really dangerous. And the, the Canadian government is pretty on board with net zero and specifically with those carbon credits, which are those ways of offsetting, they put a lot more money into carbon credits um, to the real disappointment of of many environmentalists and climate policy people around uh, the country. And, you know, it should be of concern to all of us. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And maybe I could, I could pose a different question to you, Angel, about the, you know, your involvement in, uh, uh, the labor, labor, labor movement, um, your research on indigenous participation in the labor force of the oil and gas industry in Alberta, Alberta, and how you kind of conceptualize a just transition. I mean, one of the questions that you're raising in the book, uh, as a collective is how will we pay for it? Right. Um, and I know you published, uh, also a kind of, um, you know, abbreviated version of that in the breach that people should check out. But, um, one of the things that you're saying that I think will definitely resonate and, and, and the data shows that it resonates is that um, we can point to tangible and truly giant expenditures that harm communities, ways of getting the money for transition that ought to be low hanging fruit, that ought, ought to be seen as, as a kind of a, you know, a no brainer. Um, can you speak to those specific moves and how they might resonate in terms perhaps of um the question of care again yeah and and that's where i I kind of relied on feminist economists and labor economists who often imagine a different future and a different economy Mm -hmm. um 
you know, like for example, you know, in the book we lay out ways of um, defunding the police and taking those funds that we normally put into prisons and border security and military and putting them into care economies, into childcare, long-term care, um, a better education system. So uh, I think this is an activity we often do in the left. Um, and when you do the math, you, you, we don't need to be investing so much in, you know, fossil fuel industry. Um, and we could be taxing the most rich people in Canada um, and corporations to put more into public services. Um, yeah. You know, instead of focusing on a just transition of building more infrastructure, why don't we invest more in a care economy and in our healthcare system, which contributes a great deal to our economy. Like people who work in the public sector and healthcare and education and childcare um, and the arts, like they contribute to our economy. Um, women who are at home doing unpaid care work that contributes to our economy. So, you know, there's there's a different way to imagine our economy and to focus more on the contributions that the care economy makes to Canada. And these are choices our governments make, and these are choices we make when we go vote or support certain political parties or, or leaders. But we can imagine a different type of economy. And you make it clear in the book, uh, I'll just quote it to, to kind of um, conclude here, like that this future is well within reach and that your intention in sketching what a near-term shift could look like is to show that new political possibilities can be opened up quickly and change often happens in a non-linear way. Um, and that there's not a strict deadline after which hope is lost. I think like everybody should have a poster with that on it um, in order to kind of maintain, uh, uh, you know, a sense of purpose in spite of the, the obvious challenges that exist. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly the case that for, for many people, a world, as you say, where we uphold Indigenous sovereignty and build a just transition for all can feel far away, but keeping these things in mind um, is invaluable. So I really appreciate you both making the time to talk to me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. This was really nice.